Good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you back to our continuing series of Jesus on Prophecy. And I want to point out to you that over the last five meeting nights, we have been laying a foundation so that we can begin to build on that foundation. And we are going to start doing that tonight. And I am very excited about our topic tonight. It is Prophecy's Final Judgment Hour. And I am so excited to get into that. I want to go immediately to it. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Oh, loving Father, we thank You and praise You for the rain that has fallen on the ground today. And in like manner, Lord, we want to have the Word of God nourish our souls. And so as we dive into prophecy and we look at the idea of the judgment, Lord, our prayer is that You would stir our hearts. Lord, I can't help but think about those disciples who were on the road to Emmaus after Your resurrection and You shared with them, You opened up the Scriptures to them, the things concerning Yourself. And I just appreciate how it said that they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us when He opened up the Scriptures to us. And Lord, we want to have that burning in our hearts tonight. And so our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would speak to us, give us understanding, give us wisdom. Lord, not only that, but help us to apply Your Word to our lives and may it change us. May it transform our lives. That's our desire and that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last two nights ago, we looked at the importance of the three angel messages in Revelation chapter 14. And we saw that this is God's final appeal to humanity, God's final message to every person on earth. And we saw that this message goes to every kindred, nation, tongue, and people. And we saw that it is the most urgent message in all of history. We also saw that it's our message. It is a message that God has given to our generation. And we saw that it is present truth for our time. And tonight, we are going to begin to study further into this prophecy. And we're going to look specifically at this judgment and have God open up our eyes. We are going to allow Jesus to speak directly to us from His Word in what he says. And so I want to get right to it. Let's go directly to the Bible. Open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. That's going to be page 1418 if you're using one of those seminar Bibles from your table. We've already looked at this before, but let's refresh ourselves in this. Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. He says, There was this angel that was flying in the midst of heaven. And he says that he was saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And as we looked at this two nights ago, we saw that when it tells us to fear God, that it doesn't mean that we should be afraid of God, but that we should have a healthy respect of God. And if we have a healthy respect of our parents, 
we will obey them, correct? And if God is our Father and we have a healthy respect for Him, then He is calling us to fear Him and obey His commandments. We also saw that we are to give glory to God. And we talked about that in how we give God glory through our lifestyle choices. What we eat, what we drink, what we wear, what we watch, what we allow into our mind, the people that we hang out with, every choice that we make, we glorify God if we are doing the things that He has called us to do. It also said there that the hour of His judgment has come. And we pointed out that it's not saying that it will come or that it is going to come. It says that it has come. And we saw how the judgment has to happen before Jesus Christ returns to this earth. The hour of God's judgment has come. The clock has struck the hour and the world has entered into this significant time just before the coming of Jesus and we are going to learn tonight exactly where the judgment takes place and when it takes place. And so we're going to take a look at that. But what else does the Bible have to say about Revelation's judgment hours? The the prophecies of the book of Daniel and of Revelation need to be compared to each other. We need to study both of those books because they blend together and share these incredible details regarding the timeline of history. They reveal the events that not only had to do with Christ's first coming, but they also deal with the events of His second coming. And both books provide vital information that has to do with this hour of God's judgment. And so we need to realize that God doesn't leave us in the dark. God doesn't leave us blind or unknowing. He wants us to know the things that are coming upon the world and He wants us to be prepared for His coming and to avoid the deceptions that Satan is trying to bring our way. Revelation describes in great detail this judgment. It gives us insight into the purpose. It gives us insight into the scope. But it is the book of Daniel that tells us where and when this judgment is going to take place. There, and they're also revealed to us in those two books that the one thing that we can be certain of is that if we have given our hearts to Christ, if we have asked Him to come into our hearts, be our Lord and Savior, forgive us of our sins, if we have a living connection with Him, then we have nothing to fear in the judgment. Amen? It tells us then that the pre-advent judgment is going to determine who receives the reward of the righteous and who receives the reward of the unrighteous. 
And in fact, Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus tells us, My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his works. And Jesus said the same thing to his disciples in Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. And so we see that there is this judgment that has to take place before Jesus Christ comes back to this earth. And it is a judgment of man. He is going to be looking at the records to see who is revealing in their lives that they have surrendered to God, that they have been covered by the blood of the Lamb, and who hasn't. But I also want to point out to you that the Bible actually talks about three judgment and in the reality of it is there's one judgment but in three phases and I want to point those out to you so if you have your Bibles open still keep it open to Revelation we're going to come back there but I want you to turn first to the book of Daniel Daniel chapter 7 that's going to be page 1029 in your seminar Bible Daniel chapter 7, and I want you to notice that Daniel was in vision. That's page 1029 in that seminar Bible. But notice what it says in Daniel chapter 7 in verse 9 and 10. Daniel is in vision, and he says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. And so here we see the first phase of this judgment. That is the pre-advent judgment. That's the judgment that happens before Jesus comes back to this earth. Now go with me back to the book of Revelation, but this time go to chapter 20. Chapter 20. And I want you to notice that in Revelation chapter 20 that John is also in vision. And notice what it says in Revelation chapter 20 in verse 4. John says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now here we see that when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth, He is going to take His people to heaven. And here we see that these people are the ones who did not take the mark of the beast. And now they're in heaven. And now thrones are set up. And now there's another judgment that takes place. This is the second phase of the judgment. And this is where you and I get to look at the books of heaven. And then there's a third judgment. If you look at verse 11, still here in Revelation chapter 20, 
And John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens had fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to the works by the things which were written in the books. And so here we see this third phase of the judgment. And this is after the thousand years, God is going to bring the holy city of God back down out of heaven, back to this earth. He is going to wake up the dead, those who were destroyed at the brightness of His coming, those who were sleeping in the grave. He's going to wake them up and they are also going to be able to examine the books. And so there are three different judgments there. Now, thousands of years ago, Lucifer began this rebellion against God and he led a third of the angels in that rebellion. And they challenged the authority and the government of God. Lucifer essentially said, God is unfair. God is unjust. God is expecting us to do something we can't do in keeping His law. He is a vindictive tyrant. He is a wrathful judge. And we shouldn't have to follow Him. And this rebellion in heaven introduces a question into the universe about God's character about His love and His mercy, about His justice, His fairness, and His integrity. And so this three-part judgment that Daniel and Revelation describe is not only about you and me, and I want to be very clear, it is about you and me. It's about the choices that we make every day, but it's also about the fairness of God. It's about the judgments of God. Because you see, Satan has painted God in a bad light before the universe. And God must be shown to be righteous. And so we need to remember that God is trying to win back the trust of His creation. God is trying to restore a relationship with, uh, with us. And so, in reality, the judgment is about us, but it's also about God. And God has to prove to us that, that the decisions that He makes to save some and the decisions to destroy some is the right decision. Because after all, the angels in heaven saw the, the, the rebellion of Lucifer. They saw him get kicked out of heaven. And now God is saying he wants to let sinful man into heaven. And so there is at least a part of that judgment that, that has to do with the justice and the judgments of God. God has to show that the accusations against Him were wrong. And I want to show this to you. So open up your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, that's going to be page 652 if you're using one of those seminar Bibles on the table. Psalm 51, and I want to read to you the first four verses. 
Notice that the Bible says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight. And then notice what he says. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now I want to put this into the proper context. This psalm was written by King David. And David had this illicit affair with a woman by the name of Bathsheba. And it was adultery that he had committed. And then he tried to cover it up by killing Bathsheba's husband Uriah. And he thought that he had gotten away with his sin. But then God sends His prophet Nathan to David to essentially show him God knows what you did. You haven't gotten away with this and there are going to be consequences. And then David all of a sudden has this sin revealed to him right in his face and he repents of his sin. He says, God forgive me. God wash me clean. God, uh, give me a new heart. And, and here David is repenting of his sin, and he is essentially saying, God, you're the only one that can save me. And he's essentially claiming the promises of God that if he does repent, that God will in fact save him. And that's why he says there that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, the ultimate overarching purpose of the judgment then is to reveal that God is righteous. To reveal that God makes the right choices every time and that He is trying to reconcile to us. But it's also clear that there is this sense that God is being judged. There have been these accusations that have existed since the beginning of sin in heaven, and we're going to see that God is going to be forever vindicated in the eyes of His creation. And let me show you that. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. That's going to be page 1295 of your seminar Bible page 1295 and I want you to notice something the Apostle Paul says he's speaking to the Romans he's speaking to us and I'm going to start in verse 1 notice that Paul says what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God I'm going to stop there for a moment And I want to point out that Paul is saying, what advantage is there of being a Jew? Well, it's because they're God's people. He's given them the truth, and they are to be the ones to give His truth to the world. And so there's an advantage to that. But then he says in verse 3, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? 
Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Now, I want to, first of all, I want to point out here the difference of what we just read in Psalm 51 and what we just read in Romans 3. First of all, David says to God that you will be found just when you speak and that you will be found blameless when you, God, when you judge. And now in Romans chapter 3, Paul is quoting David And notice what he says. He says that you will be justified in your words and that you may overcome when you are judged. And so there's this sense that God is the one that is being judged. And of course, we know that God is sovereign. Nobody is going to kick God out of heaven. Amen? God is in charge, but there's this sense that God is on trial as well. So not only you and me are being judged, but He's being judged as well. And it says, so that He may overcome when He is judged. And so we see that during these three judgments, the pre-advent judgment, the post-advent judgment, and the post-millennium judgment, that God is judging His people... And also God Himself is being judged. Because here's the thing. We need to realize that God is fair. God is just. God doesn't do anything in a vacuum. And so God is allowing the entire universe to see His judgments. And so in that pre-advent judgment, as he is judging who is saved and who is not, the angels are there and they are examining the books and they are seeing and judging for themselves if God is right. You see, anyone who is lost, it needs to be revealed that they're not lost because God made some arbitrary judgment of who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost. The major theme of the book of Revelation is that there is this conflict between Christ and Satan. There is this conflict between good and evil. And this three-phase judgment is going to resolve that conflict once and for all. So that sin never rises up a second time. The truth has to be revealed. And in the end, Satan is exposed as the liar that he is. Because God reveals in the judgment that he has done everything that he can to save. And that Satan has done everything that he can do to destroy. And so anyone that is lost is not lost because God points His finger and says you're going to be lost. They are lost because of their decisions. They are lost because of their choices. They are lost because they rejected the love and mercy and forgiveness of God. Revelation reveals the details 
about the work of the judgment. But I want to go back tonight and I want to focus on that pre-advent judgment. The judgment that has to happen before Christ returns to this earth. First of all, we want to answer the question, where does the judgment take place? And the book of Revelation describes the vivid scenes of the hour of His judgment. But if we are going to discover where the judgment takes place, we need to go back to the book of Daniel. And Daniel is going to unlock the mysteries of the book of Revelation. And so God intended for us to study both of these books together. And in the seventh chapter of Daniel, the prophet describes what he sees as he's looking up into heaven. And we already read this, but I want to I mention it again. Daniel 7, verse 9 and 10. Daniel says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of the Days was seated. His garment was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. So the question is, where does this judgment take place? And I think that there are two clues there that help us to determine where this judgment is taking place. First of all, I want you to notice that, that Daniel says he sees the Ancient of Days. And we should understand from our study of the Bible that the Ancient of Days is God the Father. Do you agree with that? The Ancient of Days is God the Father. And it says that He is seated. And then it starts to describe what Daniel sees. He sees Him in white raiment. He sees His hair as white as snow. And then he describes the throne of God. And so you and I, we're reasonable people. We can reason together, can't we? We can think this through. If Daniel is describing what he sees, and he sees the Ancient of Days, and he sees the throne of God, he sees God sitting where? On His throne, right? And where does the Bible tell us that the throne of God is? It's in heaven, right? So that's the first clue. The second one is that we see these thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 that are around the throne of God and they are examining the books. And if you study through the Bible again, you'll see very clearly that this is talking about the angels of God. And so clearly the where of where this judgment is taking place is it's taking place in heaven. But that brings up another question. And that question is, when does the judgment take place? Now we noticed already from that first angel of Revelation chapter 14 that he declares that the hour of God's judgment has come. And so this message goes out to the world before Jesus Christ returns to this earth and it also shows us that this judgment has to happen before Christ comes back to the earth because He Himself tells us that the hour of His judgment has come and that He is bringing His reward with Him. And I want you to notice Jesus saying this. We've already looked at this verse. But Jesus says... 
and my reward is with me. So according to Jesus, when He comes back to this earth, He is bringing His reward. He's going to reward the righteous. He's going to reward the wicked. And so if He's bringing His reward with Him, then this judgment has to happen before the second coming. Are you with me? Does that make sense? And so now, we, we've got to make sure that we allow the Bible to interpret itself. We can't listen to uh, our favorite author or our favorite pastor who, who might be saying that the judgment takes place on the earth. Because we can see clearly from the Word of God that it happens in heaven. Now, I want to show you something really amazing. Turn with me back to the book of Daniel. Daniel, and this time we're going to go to Daniel chapter 8. That's going to be on page 1031 of your seminar Bible. Daniel chapter 8. And I want you to notice here that that we are going to learn from Daniel when this judgment takes place. Daniel is in vision in in Daniel chapter 8. And God sends the angel Gabriel to tell him about his vision. And I want you to notice what it says in Daniel chapter 8 verse 14. It says, And he, that's the angel Gabriel, said to me, that's Daniel, for 2,300 days and then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now I want to point out to you two very important things that we see in this verse. First of all, we see a timeline. We see this time element in this prophecy and it is 2300 days. And then we also see that there is an event that is going to take place at the end of the 2300 days. Because we know that because Daniel 8.14 says for 2300 days... What's the next word? Then the sanctuary will be cleansed. So we see this prophecy of 2300 days and at the end of that time period, then the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. And so notice that it says in the next couple of verses to Daniel 8:16 and 17, The angel Gabriel says to Daniel, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. So let me ask you a question. Is this important to us today? Absolutely, because we are living in the last days of earth's history. And so this prophecy is very important to us. And and we can safely say that this prophecy is, is uh, of critical importance for us to understand because the first thing that Gabriel says to Daniel is, understand, son of man. You've got to understand this prophecy. And so the Bible says that after the 2300 days that the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. Now what we need to figure out is what does it mean that the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. And if we are going to understand that, well, first of all, we need to realize that when, when the 
angel Gabriel said to Daniel that the sanctuary was going to be cleansed, you can be pretty certain that Daniel understood what that meant. Because Daniel was a Jew. Daniel was living in the Old Testament times, and even though he was now a captive in Babylon, he was a boy in Jerusalem, and he had seen the sanctuary service going on. And so Daniel understood, but we need to understand. So what does the cleansing of the sanctuary mean? If we're going to understand that, we have got to go back to the Old Testament sanctuary service. Because you see, the sanctuary here on earth was a pattern. It was a type of the sanctuary in heaven. And so the things that were happening in the earthly sanctuary were patterns, they were symbols of a more important reality that was going on or was going to go on in heaven. And so it's important for us to understand the sanctuary service. And there's a verse here that's going to give us a clue. Exodus 25 verse 8 says, God said to Moses, Let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. Now there's a very good lesson in this too, friends. And that is that even though God's people were constantly turning their back on Him, they were constantly rebelling against Him, they were worshiping false idols, even in the midst of all of that, God still wanted to dwell with them. Isn't that good news? That even though we make mistakes, God loves us enough that He wants to be with us. But in the sanctuary service in the Old Testament we're going to see that this is where God met with His people. And there are several parts of that sanctuary and parts of the service that we need to talk about. And there we need to understand the elements, the symbols that are used there and what they mean. And we're going to see that this sanctuary service reveals Jesus in many ways and it helps us to understand what He is doing right now in the heavenly sanctuary. It is also a model for Bible prophecy. Much of what is written in the book of Revelation is either a direct or at least a partial quote from the Old Testament. And so we must understand the sanctuary service if we're going to understand what the cleansing of the sanctuary means. There's a verse in the Bible that says, Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. What that's saying is if we're going to understand God's plan of salvation, we need to understand the sanctuary service because they were all symbols pointing to a greater reality. And so the sanctuary was divided up into two parts. The first part is called the outer court, and that's this area here with this fence, and it's inside that fence, that area is called the outer court, and then also in that fenced-in area is the tabernacle, and the tabernacle itself is made up of two places, one place called the holy place, and another called the most holy, as if holy's not enough, right? Most holy place. And this is where God would meet with His people. And so if you were living in Old Testament times and you sinned against God, you needed to take a lamb, a pure spotless lamb without blemish, and you needed to take your lamb to the sanctuary. 
and you would confess your sins over the Lamb and symbolically, spiritually speaking, your sins would be transferred to the animal. The guilt of your sin would be transferred to the animal. And now that animal is representing a sinful life. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so now you take the knife and you cut that animal's throat and the animal dies. And while it's dying, the priests are there with a bowl catching the blood of the animal because the life is in the blood, the Bible tells us. And so what happens is through every day of the year... Except for one, every day they had the daily sanctuary service and they were sacrificing their animals. And once the animal died, the animal was placed on the brazen altar and it was burned up and that was symbolic of Jesus Christ dying for us on the cross of Calvary. The daily service pointed to Him every single day. But then the priest would take that blood And now that blood is symbolically representing sin. And so the priest takes that blood into the holy place, the first compartment of the sanctuary. He goes all the way to the back where the altar of incense is. He sprinkles some blood on the altar. And then it says he also sprinkles some on the curtain that divides the holy and the most holy place. And the reason that they sprinkled blood on that curtain is because right on the other side of the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandment Law of God. And so this was symbolically sprinkling that sin over the broken law of God. We also see that in that Ark of the Covenant, there was a top which was called the mercy seat. And that mercy seat symbolically represented the throne of God, the seat of God. And then these two angels facing each other represented those thousands and thousands and ten thousand times ten thousands of angels that are there in heaven. And in between there is the Shekinah glory, which was the representation of God's presence. Think about this for a minute. Every day, the priests are coming into the sanctuary and they're bringing this blood which symbolically represents your sin. And so, spiritually speaking, every day they're bringing in this sin and every day, if you will, this sin is piling up. And so now the sanctuary is polluted. Right? And so the sanctuary has to be cleansed. And so one day out of the year, it was called the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the most holy place. But there was something very significantly different about this day. Rather than confessing sins over a lamb and bringing polluted blood into the sanctuary... They would get two goats that were spotless, pure, no blemishes, and they would cast lots for them. And one of them was the Lord's goat, and one was the scapegoat. And they would take the Lord's goat, and they would cut its throat, and they would take that blood. They didn't confess any sin over it, so this is considered pure, innocent blood. 
And now the high priest and the high priest only would take that innocent blood, that pure blood, into the sanctuary, not into the holy place, but all the way into the most holy place, and he would sprinkle that blood over the Ark of the Covenant with the broken law of God in it. And now this pure innocent blood is symbolically cleansing the sanctuary. And when the high priest comes out, he is essentially bringing all of that sin with him and he lays his hands on the scapegoat, which represents Satan, and he confesses all of that sin and all of the blame is put where it rightfully belongs on the scapegoat, and then it's taken out into the wilderness to die. And so the judgment, the day of atonement, and the cleansing of the sanctuary are the exact same event. But so is the judgment. Let me show you this. Turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus. That's going to be page 131 of your seminar Bible. And I want you to notice in the book of Leviticus, if your Bible is like mine, it has a headline over the top of the chapter that says that it's talking about the Day of Atonement. And so this whole chapter is about the cleansing of the sanctuary and the Day of Atonement. And you can read that for yourself later. But I want you to notice just a couple of verses here. Look with me at verse 30 and 31. For on that day, that's the Day of Atonement. That's on the day of the cleansing of the sanctuary. It says that the priest, that's the high priest, shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all of your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you and you shall do what? Afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And so here we see that while the priest is here in the most holy place sprinkling that blood over the Ark of the Covenant, the people were to be examining their own heart. They were to be looking at their sins, confessing their sins, turning to God and getting themselves right with God. Uh, Forgive me, of lying, forgive me of hurting my neighbor, forgive me of my temper, my bitterness, my jealousy, Uh, I committed adultery, Uh, I coveted my neighbor's things, whatever it might be, they were to be afflicting their souls. And so in reality, what this was is in the minds of the Jews, the Day of Atonement, the cleansing of the sanctuary, was also a day of judgment. Because the Bible says there in Leviticus, and you can go back and read it for yourself, that if there was an Israelite that did not participate, they did not afflict their soul, then God said that they were to be cut off from the tribe of Israel. And so there is this judgment that is going on in the Day of Atonement. And so the Day of Atonement, the cleansing of the sanctuary, and the judgment are all the exact same 
event. And so while the daily sacrifices were depicting Christ dying on the cross for us, now the one day in a year ceremony was revealing Jesus Christ as our High Priest in the heavenly sanctuary. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, Gabriel told Daniel, for 2,300 days and then the sanctuary will be cleansed. And so the cleansing of the sanctuary is referring to the judgment that takes place right before the end of earth's history. And so it's described there in Daniel 16. But notice this, it says, the Day of Atonement was an illustration of God's judgment in the heavenly sanctuary that will occur just before Jesus comes again. So that daily sacrifice, that yearly Day of Atonement, were all pointing to greater realities. Pointing to Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. Pointing to Him now in the heavenly sanctuary interceding on our behalf. So what is the meaning then of the 2300 days. You might say, I don't understand. Because if you add up the 2300 days, that equals approximately six years. So how could it be that the 2300 days would get us from the days of Daniel all the way down to the end of time? So this is not talking about 2300 literal days. It's talking about something else. And notice that the verses in Daniel 8, 16 and 17, God says, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And so God gives Daniel the vision and He sends this angel Gabriel to help him understand the vision. God always interprets prophecy for Himself. And so it says that He, that's Gabriel, came near to me, that's Daniel, where I stood. And when He came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But He said to me, understand, Son of Man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. And so we can see this 2300 days is applicable to us today. And so this prophecy is a time period that takes us all the way down to the end of earth's history. And uh, I want to talk a minute about how God spoke to His people in Old Testament times. You can go back through the Old Testament and you can see how there were many times that God sent His prophets to His people and gave them a thus saith the Lord. Right? This is what God says. This is what you need to do. There are many times you can see that. And then there were also times where God spoke in other ways. God spoke in the time of the judges. Right? And you can go back to the book of Judges and you can read all about that. But then, very interestingly, there are other times when God spoke to His people not necessarily in words, but in actions. There were times that God had His prophets act out a play, if you will. And there is a really great example of that in the book of Hosea. 
I don't know if you've read that book before, but it's a powerful book, amazing book, because in this book, God says to His prophet, Hosea, I want you to go marry a hooker. Now, I want you to put yourself in the place of Hosea. Could you marry someone knowing that they were going to be unfaithful to you? But God says to His prophet, I want you to go marry a hooker. And He goes and He finds this uh, woman by the name of Gomer and He marries her and sure enough, she's unfaithful to Him. She's constantly running off. In fact, she even sells herself into slavery. But the whole thing was a play that God was having Hosea uh, play out so that God could show His people how He feels. Because God is essentially married to people who are unfaithful to Him. And they are constantly running around and constantly committing adultery on Him. And they even have sold themselves into sin. And so God is showing us in picture what He wants. And the same thing happens in the book of Ezekiel. In this particular chapter, chapter 4, God tells Ezekiel that I want you to lay on your side for 40 days. And He says, I have given you a day for a year. God had given them instructions that every seven years they were to let the land be uncultivated so that the land could rest, but they weren't doing it. And they had been doing that for 40 years. And so Ezekiel acts out this play and he says, I want you to lay on your side for 40 days. And that 40 days represents the 40 years of unfaithfulness of my people. And so... We Remember, we need to let the Bible interpret itself. And so what we're seeing here is that this 2,300 prophetic days actually equals 2,300 literal years. Here's where we use this day for a year principle. And you can also find that And I'm not going to take you there, but you can go to Numbers chapter 14 and you can look at verse 33 and 34 and you'll see another example of that. But here we see that 2,300 days is really 2,300 years. So if the Bible gives us the starting point of this 2,300 years, then we could easily calculate the ending point. And if we know the ending point, we know that the judgment starts after that, right? All right, so let's see if we can do it. I want you to go with me back to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 8. That's going to be page 1032 if you're using one of those seminar Bibles. 1032. And we're going to look at Daniel chapter 8. Now in this chapter, Daniel is in vision again. And the angel is there giving him this vision And I want you to notice we have this vision of the 2300 days. We already read that in verse 14. But I want you to notice what it says in verse 26. The angel Gabriel is speaking to Daniel and he says, and the vision of the evenings and the mornings, that's the 2300 days, which was told is true Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Now look at the next verse. 
And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. And afterwards I rose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but did not understand it. Here we see that Daniel is telling us he's having this vision. Gabriel is sent to interpret the vision. He, he is told by God, make this man understand. And Gabriel is trying to help Daniel understand. And Daniel passes out. This vision must have been extremely intense. And Daniel can't handle anymore and he passes out. And so now, Gabriel can't tell him what it means. He starts to tell him, but he can't finish. And so Daniel's sick many days. Then he gets up, and then he starts telling people about his vision, and he says no one else understood it either. And so then we have a period of time that goes by, and we go to Daniel chapter 9. Now I want to point out to you that in the original manuscript, there were no chapters It was one continuous letter, right? And so, forget about the difference between chapter 8 and chapter 9. We want to continue the story on. And so we see, if you look at chapter 9, look at verse 2, we see there that Daniel, he's trying to figure out what this vision of 2300 days is all about. He's examining the scrolls. He's looking at the prophet Isaiah. He's looking at the prophet Jeremiah. And he's trying to figure out what does this 2300 days have to do with? And he comes across something very important in the prophecy of Jeremiah. He realizes that Jeremiah says that the captivity of Israel was only going to be 70 years. Now you'll remember that Daniel himself is in captivity, right? He was brought as a teenager from Israel to Babylon and now Daniel is an old man in his mid-80s, early 90s, and he realizes, hey, the 70 years are about to be up. And, and so what happens? You read through Daniel 9, verse 4 through 19, and you see Daniel starts praying. He confesses his own sin. He confesses the sins of the people of Israel. And he's asking God to fulfill His promise. You promised that at the end of the 70 years of captivity that we were going to be able to go home and rebuild Jerusalem. And so here we have this prophecy... And Daniel 9 is really just an extension of Daniel chapter 8. And now, friends, we are about to get into a prophecy that is so amazing that it perfectly shows that Jesus is the Messiah. It perfectly shows that Jesus was baptized on time. It perfectly shows that Jesus was crucified on time. It so perfectly shows it that the Pharisees of ancient Israel put a curse on anyone who would look into this prophecy. So if you have the courage, let's look at this prophecy. In Daniel chapter 9, I want you to notice what it says. Look with me in Daniel chapter 9, and I want you to look with me at verse 20 and 21. Daniel had just finished praying, and notice what he says, or he was in the middle of praying. 
And Daniel says, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning. And you can read the rest of it. I'm going to stop right there. I want you to notice that Gabriel comes. He's trying to help Daniel understand the vision but Daniel faints. And so Gabriel leaves. Daniel is sick for several days. At some point later, all of a sudden, Daniel is examining the Scriptures. He discovers that the 70 years of captivity are up. He's praying to God that He will keep His promise. And as he's praying, Gabriel shows up. And he says it's the first guy that was there at the beginning. At the beginning of what? At the beginning of the 2300 day prophecy. And so here we see that Gabriel is now coming back to finish the job that God had given him. He has got to help Daniel understand this 2300 day prophecy. And I want you to notice he starts giving Daniel some understanding. And the first thing he says is in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now let me ask you a question. Whose people are Daniel's people? Israel, the Jews, right? And what city is Daniel's city? Jerusalem, that's right. And so here we see that this new prophecy that we're going to see has to do directly with the Jews. And we're also going to see that this prophecy, remember what it said? Seventy weeks are determined for your people, right? If you go back to the original manuscript of Daniel, which was in the Hebrew language, you see that that word that is translated into English, determined, can also be translated cut off. Seventy weeks are cut off for you people. Cut off from what? Cut off from the 2300 day prophecy. And so here we see that Gabriel is telling Daniel the 2300 day prophecy starts with this 70 week prophecy. So if you have a 70 week prophetic prophecy and there are how many days in a week seven days in a week that means we're talking about 490 prophetic days and if we're talking about prophetic days we're actually talking about literal years right and so we have that symbology of Ezekiel 4 6 and Numbers 14, 33, and 34, 490 symbolic days equals 490 literal years. And so God is giving the nation of Israel 490 years of probation. And so if one day equals a year, then we have 490 years specifically for the Jews. And so the question then is, when does this prophecy start? And I want you to turn with me to Daniel 9, and I want you to look at verse 25. 
He gives them this 70-week prophecy. And then He says, Know therefore and understand that from... That's the starting point. From the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. So what is this event that is going to start the prophecy of the 70 weeks and the prophecy of the 2300 days. This event is a command that is going to be given. And you can imagine how excited Daniel is getting about this, right? Because he's discovered from the prophet Jeremiah that the 70 weeks are almost up. So now the angel is telling him, you should be looking for a command to go and restore and build Jerusalem. And you'll remember that in the days of Daniel, that Jerusalem was in ruins. It was destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar years earlier had come and destroyed the city, torn down the temple, torn down the walls. Everything was destroyed. And now there's going to be a command so that the people can go back and they can start to rebuild the city and the temple and the walls and all of this stuff. And so this angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and he gives him this 2300-day prophecy and he says that the first 490 years are going to be for you and your people. And so this whole thing from right to left of our screen represents the whole 2300 days, but... It's not even here, but the first 490 years is going to represent the Jews, and we're going to talk about that, and we've got to fit some stuff in there, so don't look at it as being equal amount of time. If there's 490 years there, it means there must be another 1,810 years over on this side. So let's continue with the verse. Daniel 9.25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. And so I want to point out to you that there were actually three commands that were given allowing the Jews to go back to Israel and rebuild. And the very first one actually happened in Daniel's life. It happened in his lifetime because you'll remember that we talked about how the Medes and the Persians were going to conquer Babylon. You remember how Cyrus, the king of the Medes, took his army, went up the river, diverted the river, dammed it up, and then him and his army just walked through the gates and went into the city, and they captured the city in one night. And when that happened, you can imagine Jewish history tells us that when that happened, that the leaders of Israel who were there in Babylon, they took their scrolls and they went and they saw King Cyrus. And they showed him the prophecy of Isaiah where Isaiah said that Cyrus, named him by name, was going to be the one to conquer Babylon. And that may have been something that helped Cyrus be the one who gave the first command allowing whoever wanted to to go back to Israel and begin to build. They could build the city, they could build the walls, they could build the temple. He gave them that permission. And then you can go to the book of Nehemiah and you can see how they had a lot of trouble. 
and they weren't getting the wall built. And then Nehemiah goes and helps them. And then they're continuing to have these problems with all the nations around them. And so they complain back to Medo-Persia. And now you have the second decree by the king by the name of Darius. And he essentially gives the same command that Israel can go and build, leave them alone. And so in these two commands, you essentially have the same thing. You can go and build. But there's something very important about that. And that is, you can go build, but Medo-Persia is still in control. And so it's not until the third command that we actually have the things that are necessary to meet the prophecy. And that is to build and to restore. And so it's not until later on when Artaxerxes is the king that we have this third command. And I want to show this to you. So turn with me to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 7. That's going to be page 543 in your seminar Bible. 543. If you know where the book of Nehemiah is, it's right before that, Ezra chapter 7. And I'm not going to read this whole decree from Artaxerxes. You can go back and read it yourself. But we're going to pick up right in the middle of this prophecy. And so notice in Ezra chapter 7, look with me at verse 24 and 25. Here we see that that Artaxerxes is giving this command and he says, verse 24, Also we inform you, that's whoever is reading this command or decree, that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra... According to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river. And I'm going to stop there. I want you to notice here that Artaxerxes is giving this command and he's saying that the people can, can do two things. They can go back and build, but notice that he also says, and you, Ezra the priest set up magistrates and judges. And so here we see that now Artaxerxes is restoring their civil power. Here he's giving them sovereignty over their own nation again. And he's saying you can not only go back and rebuild, but now you can set up judges and magistrates and set up your own civil government. And so according to this third command that was given, that's the one that fits the description of the requirement of the uh, prophecy. So the question then is when does this prophecy start? And I should have stayed there, but I'm going to go back to Ezra chapter 7 and I want you to notice that right at the beginning of this command this decree that goes out Ezra chapter 7 look with me in verse 7 
It says, some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nethanim, came up to Jerusalem in the what? In the seventh year of Artaxerxes. And history shows us that the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes was in 457 B.C. Now, we don't want to just take history's word for it. We want to verify that history is right, don't we? And so let's see if we can figure this out. If 457 is our anchor point, it said in the prophecy that 490 years were for the Jews. And that would leave another 1,810 years at the end. But it said in the prophecy, seven weeks and 62 weeks, and then you should see who? Messiah the Prince. Now, who is the Messiah? Jesus Christ. So, we have seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's a literal 483 years. And then we should see the Messiah. Now... Let me ask you a question. What does Messiah mean? I heard somebody say it. The anointed one, right? So the question is, was Jesus ever anointed? And the answer is yes. You can go to Acts chapter 10, verse 38, and Peter says that when Jesus went in to the water to be baptized, that He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was baptized right on time. Therefore, from the command to restore and to build... There should be 483 years and then we should see the Anointed One. Jesus Christ was baptized right on time. Now, let's do the math. If the beginning is 457 B.C. and we're going to go 483 years, just subtract 457 from 483 and you get to 26 A.D. But there's one problem with that. The problem is that you are going from B.C. to A.D. And when that happens, it goes 3 B.C., 2 B.C., 1 B.C., 1 A.D., 2 A.D., 3 A.D. There's no zero year. So... You can't just do straight math there. You have to add a year on because there's no zero year. So that takes us to 27 A.D. And so the question is, was Jesus baptized in 27 A.D.? And the Gospel of Luke can help us to answer that question. Because in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, it says, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. But just a few verses earlier, in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, all these things were happening. And history shows us that the fifteenth year of Tiberius Caesar's reign was 27 A.D. Jesus was baptized right on time. Friends, can there be any doubt in our minds that Jesus is the Messiah. I don't think so. 
Daniel predicted the exact date 500 years before Jesus was born. But the prophecy goes on. And after the 62 weeks, which is actually 69 weeks, because remember the prophecy said there will be 7 weeks and 62 weeks. So 7 is before the 62, so you have to add it to it. You have 69 weeks. And let me tell you why I think they broke it up. Because if you go back and study it out, you'll see that when the Israelites were free to go back and they went back and started building the wall, and you can read about this in the book of Nehemiah, and you can do the calculations, you will figure out that it took them seven prophetic weeks. Seven times seven days, it took them 49 years to build the wall. And so it gives us even a little more certainty that we have the right start date, don't we? And so 69 weeks later, it said that Messiah shall be cut off. Now, what does it mean to be cut off? It means to be killed, right? Jesus Christ was going to be crucified. And so we're going to see, too, that He was cut off in that week. Now notice Daniel 9.27 says, And he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Here we see that Jesus Christ, before he dies, is going to confirm a covenant with the people. Now we want to make sure that we understand this because there are a lot of pastors today and a lot of Bible teachers that are saying that this is talking about the Antichrist coming on the scene at the end of time. He's going to make a treaty with Israel for seven years. He's going to allow them to rebuild the temple and to start making sacrifices again. But halfway through the covenant with them he's going to go into the temple he's going to claim to be God and he's going to tell them they can't sacrifice anymore and that they need to worship him that's the popular teaching of today but we need to let scripture speak to us we need to let us tell us what it is meant and if you look through all of the bible you will never find anywhere that satan makes a covenant with God's people there is nowhere Only God makes a covenant with His people. And it says that He's going to confirm the covenant. You can't confirm something that you haven't made. And so it has to be something that God has done. The Bible says that Jesus is going to confirm that for one week. And we know that one week is seven days and that's seven literal years, right? We've gone through the prophecy. There's 490 years. We've covered 483. So there's seven years left in the prophecy. One prophetic week. Now, going back to Daniel chapter 9, it says in verse 27, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifices and offerings. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he put an end to the sacrifices. At least in the eyes of God, they had no more value. 
because He was the ultimate Lamb of God that all those lambs were pointing forward to. And now that He has died, there's no longer any need for those. And yes, it's true that Israel, in their rebellion, kept sacrificing animals all the way up to 70 A.D. until the temple was destroyed. But in the eyes of God, they had no more value because the ultimate Lamb of God had come. He put an end to it. And so here we have this prophecy and it says that he is going to confirm a covenant for one week but in the middle of the week he would be cut off tell me what is the middle of seven three and a half so did anything important happen three and a half years into Jesus ministry he was cut off right he was crucified and so we see that in AD 31 Jesus Christ was crucified right on time. Friends, what an amazing God we have that He would show us this so that we can trust Him, so that we can trust His Word, so that we can trust when He tells us what we need to do in these last days. And so Daniel chapter 9 is about Jesus Christ as our Messiah. It says He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So let me ask you a question. If Jesus was cut off in the middle of the week, then how is it that He could confirm the covenant for the whole week? And the answer is, He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And 40 days later, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the disciples. And so what Jesus started to confirm in person for the first three and a half years, now His church would confirm for the other three and a half years. I want to show this to you, so turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. I want to prove to you from the Bible that Jesus is the one who confirms this covenant. That's going to be page 1146 in your seminar Bible. Matthew 26. And I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse 28. This is the Last Supper. He gives them the cup and tells them to drink. He gives them the bread, tells them to eat. And then notice what He says in verse 28. For this is My blood of the what? Of the new covenant which is shed for who? For many for the remission of sins. So here we clearly see in the Word of God that Jesus is the one who confirmed the covenant with many. Amen? Jesus Christ is the Lord of the covenant. And He was crucified exactly on time. That's why Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. That's why Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled. In Romans 5, verse 6, it says, In due time Christ died for the ungodly. You see, friends, when Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, prophetic time began. And the whole life of Jesus Christ, He was on the clock. And that's why you see in various places that Jesus said, My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. He said that before His baptism, and He said that before His crucifixion. 
He needed to be baptized right on time. He needed to be crucified right on time to fulfill the prophecies. And on the day that His crucifixion, He was hanging on the cross. They were in the temple. They were ready to sacrifice the Passover lamb. And the earthquake hit. The knife fell out of the priest's hand. The lamb ran away. And the Bible tells us that the curtain between the holy and most holy place in the tabernacle was torn from top to bottom, signifying that God was showing us that the prophecy had been fulfilled. Christ was born on time. As the Messiah, He was baptized on time as the Messiah. He was crucified on time as the Messiah. So we don't need to be looking to Israel today. We don't need to be looking for some earthly temple to be rebuilt. We need to be looking to the sanctuary in heaven and what Jesus Christ is doing there now on our behalf. We need to fix our eyes on this cosmic conflict that is going on between Christ and Satan, between good and evil. Jesus was crucified in the spring of A.D. 31, and the gospel was given. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, when he first sent them out, he said, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. You remember that? Because remember, the prophecy, the first 490 years, was for the Jews only. And so that prophecy, three and a half years after His crucifixion, needed to come to an end. But here's the amazing part. Even after they crucified Him, He still gave them three and a half years to reconsider to rethink about what they had done and to accept Him as the Messiah so that they could remain the favored people of God. But three and a half years later, I'm going to go back and look at this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him? First, the covenant was confirmed by Jesus in person, and now it was confirmed by the disciples for three and a half years. And then in 34 A.D., the first deacon of the church, a man by the name of Stephen, gave an address to the Sanhedrin. And he basically told them, you killed the Lord of glory. And the Bible says that they were so angry that they came at Him in one accord and they stoned Him to death. They were signifying their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah as a nation. And then persecution breaks out and the Gospel goes to the Gentiles. And so there are three very important things that happened in A.D. 34. It marks the end of the 490-year prophecy. It marks that the Jewish nation officially rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and they were no longer the favored nation of God to give the gospel to the world, but now the church goes out and gives the gospel to the Gentiles. So, does the 490-year prophecy fit 
for Jesus as the Messiah? It absolutely does. Does the day for a year principle fit for the prophecy? It absolutely does. Now let's go back to where we started. Seventy weeks are determined for your people. That's the beginning of the 70-week prophecy. That's the beginning of the 2,300-year prophecy. And Daniel 8.14 said, For 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. That's when the Day of Atonement is. And that's the day that the judgment would begin. So if the judgment began in 457 B.C., And the 490 years went out to A.D. 34. If we add 1,810 years onto that, it takes us to 1844. And October 22nd, 1844, the judgment began. That's another whole study to show you how it's that exact date. But that's when it began, in 1844. So here's the thing, brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors. If the judgment began in 1844, then that means it's going on right now. And the judgment, the day of atonement, the cleansing of the sanctuary was the time when God's people were to be afflicting their souls. And so that was pointing forward, that was the type pointing forward to the anti-type, the real judgment that's going on in heaven. And if that judgment is going on, then that's telling us that now is the time for us to get ourselves right with God. Because Jesus Christ is about to come back to this earth and we need to be ready. And we saw already what it means to fear God and to give glory to Him. As the angels and God are pouring over the books of heaven in that judgment, how is it going to look when your name comes up? Is there going to be enough evidence from your life to show that you have totally surrendered your heart to Jesus? He is calling us to a much higher standard than the world. He is calling us to be different in what we eat, what we drink, what we wear, what we watch. He is calling out a people. Remember what we read in Titus chapter 2, that God is looking for a people in these last days who look just like Jesus. And when that judgment is done, Jesus is coming back to get His people. And so the question is, are we ready? Since 1844, we have been living in God's judgment hour. Revelation 14, verse 7 says, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And that's why we have this theme for our series. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it's not, we got to throw it out. Amen? And so now is the time for us to examine our hearts. Now is the time for us to get ready for the coming of Jesus. Now is the time that the recording angels are writing down what you are doing and does your proclamation agree with your actions? It's easy for any of us to say, yeah, I've given my heart to God. But do we have a record that shows that what we're doing 
agrees with that statement. We've got to get ready. Is that the desire of your heart? Do you want to be ready for the coming of Jesus? Have you seen clearly from this prophecy that Jesus is the Messiah? Have you clearly seen that the 490 years was strictly for the Jews and the remaining 1810 years was for the Gentiles and now the judgment has begun? Have you seen it for yourself? And we know that in the Day of Atonement, we know that in the judgment, now is the time for us to get ready. If that's the desire of your heart, let me see your hands. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, wow, this prophecy is so powerful. It so clearly shows that Jesus is the Messiah. It so clearly shows that He was baptized on time, that He was crucified on time. Lord, we have seen that we can trust the Word of God. And You are showing this because You are preparing us for the things that are coming on the world. And Lord, You want us to be ready. And You have more truths to show us. And Lord, we want to see those truths as well. And when we see them, we are praying that You will help us to be so in love with the truth that we will follow it no matter what it costs. And we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.